Good to be with you all. Good to see some college students and other kids, um, now adults, here for the holidays. I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving coming up. Um, today we're going to enter into, uh, continue with Romans, and we'll be looking at chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And as you turn there, though, I want to go back to what I said two weeks ago when we began this chapter. As many of you know, here in chapter 12, Paul turns toward practical applications of the gospel. He's been explaining the gospel all throughout Romans, how the gospel is the power of God for our salvation to everyone who believes. He's been unpacking that. And now here in Romans 12, he's beginning to get to how we flesh this out in day-to-day life. And if you, if you recall, two weeks ago, I, I said that we cannot lose sight of how Paul frames the mercy of God as the, the, the anchor point for how we frame the Christian life. I said we can think of it as a pendulum, that the greater to the degree that we understand we have been saved by the mercy of God, the more, that will, uh, uh, the more we will respond in our life to a life of living, sacrificial obedience to God. As he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in light of the mercies of God, on account of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. He's telling us that our life lived to God is all a response to the mercy of God. And in fact, in Romans 11, at the end of that, he said, God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. The Christian life is a response to the mercy of God. And I said two weeks ago that that is a really, really big thing to remember because it tells us a lot about ourselves and it tells us a lot about God. If we really get down into the core of our identity, into the core of our being, that we are saved by the mercy of God, it means for us we recognize that we have no claim upon God. We are a helpless beggar. and Even worse, we are God's enemy. We have no right to salvation, no right to God, no claims to grace, no right to stand before God and say, and say to Him, you ought to save me. That's what it means to be saved by the mercy of God for us. That when we look in the mirror, we know that there's nothing save the sheer love of God that is why He set His face upon me, His grace upon me. So we recognize in our very core, our fundamental identity that we are saved by the mercy of God, it, it, it absolutely changes and shapes how we look at ourselves. Secondly, it changes how we look at God. God is the merciful God. He loves us because He loves us. He doesn't love me because of something good in me. If that were true, then God, I mean, how could that possibly be true? The grace of God would be so flimsy if it were based on some goodness in me because I know me. And if I thought God loved me for me, then I'm in a lot of trouble. So I know that because it is of the mercy of God that God's love upon me is absolutely steadfast because it's His love for me that He chose to do. So I know that He will never stop being merciful towards me. He will always be loving towards me. And all of Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15, as we're going to see uh, as, as we walk through these chapters, is fundamentally shaped by this idea that we are saved by the mercy of God, and therefore we ought to offer our lives as sacrifices, living and holy and pleasing. 
I said to you that, you know, the, the reason why I think Paul uses that language of sacrifice, the metaphor of sacrifice is, first of all, it speaks to God's claim upon us. The sacrifice was that sheep chosen out of the flock. It was God's sheep. And that's why in the Old Testament, when they don't offer their sacrifices, whether it's for their first grain offerings or their sheep, God gets mad because he says, that's mine. I claim that. Also, though, I said that you cannot escape the imagery of sacrifice, of death uh, with a sacrifice. And the whole, as you see all through this, 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 uh, these chapters here, the character of the Christian life is one that is, is a giving of oneself for others. Just as Christ offered himself as the true and ultimate sacrifice, we, in a similar manner, offer our lives as a sacrifice, meaning we give our lives to others. If you want to take all of Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 and boil it down, the fundamental character, as we will see even today, of the Christian life is someone who gives his life away or her life away in love toward others. Now, what gets, where we get teeth on that is what is the antithesis of this characteristic? What is, the, what is the opposite of this kind of Christian life? What is the opposite way of living that is, is opposed to all that Paul is going to characterize here about being a sacrifice? Well, it can be summed up in the word pride. That pride, boasting, is the opposite kind of life. And in fact, all through Romans, Paul has been talking about this theme of pride and boasting. In Romans 1, 28-32, he said, talking about uh, non-believers, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The reason why I wanted to read that list is because I want you to have that list in your mind when we now look at Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, and the comparison and contrast of these two lists shouts the gospel and what God has done loud and clearly. Because what we're going to see, what he calls the Christian to, Paul does not think that's humanly, uh, humanly possible. Look how he describes human beings outside of Christ. Inventors of evil, boastful, disobedient, so when we get to hear these exhortations for how Christians are to live, I want you to keep in mind what Paul himself said about the unbeliever. Because we know that Paul has no conception that we can be the things he's going to call us to be apart from the active, living grace of God in our life that has transformed us. But he talks openly about the dangers of pride. In Romans, 3, uh, in, in Romans 3, verses 23 and 20, sorry, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 27, he speaks specifically that the gospel cuts out our cause for pride. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. 
in multiple of Paul's letters, he, he explains how God's method of saving us, we being recipients of his mercy, practically speaking, in a very, very powerful way, undercuts any attempt for human boasting, for human pride. You know, it's funny how traditions, because of the Reformation, we rightly identify Paul as the apostle of justification and, 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 and salvation and forgiveness of sins, and that's all good and true. But Paul is also the apostle proclaiming that you cannot boast um, because of the gospel. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because Paul knows the human heart. He knows his own heart. He knows my heart. He knows that I like to boast. I like to be prideful. I like to say, look at me and what I've done with my life. And yet, as we'll see here in Romans chapter 12, you, can, you cannot do anything in the Christian life if it's out of pride. And so what, so what I want to suggest to you, that as we look at a variety of specific exhortations, I don't want you or myself to get this sense of like, okay, here's a whole lot of list of things we are to do. And you get obsessed with things. Okay, now I got to do this. Okay, no, now I got to do this. Okay, now, no, now I got to do this. What I want us to, to think about first and foremost is that the fundamental character of the Christian life is one that's lived in response to the mercy of God. And that out of that, we are shaped to be those who live a, a life as a sacrifice of giving to others. Because if you do that, then you're going to be doing the things Paul is going to talk about. And what you recognize here then in these verses is he's merely giving shape to what we already are wanting and ought to be doing. That's a very different thing. So if I give you an analogy, if I have a huge pitcher of water and I hold you to eight different containers, that water will take the shape of those containers, right? Whether it's tall and slender or short and vivid matter, the water will take the shape of that container. The container itself is it's unique, but what's important about all that is the water that's being poured out. So what I, was, what I want you to think about this morning is as we look at these exhortations, don't get obsessed with the specific one per se, but recognize that if you've been changed by God, if you're living in light of the mercy of God, by the Spirit of God, crying out to Him, and as He says in Romans 8, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, that you're going to be living the characteristics in principle that we're looking at today. And what Paul wants us to help to do is just give us some basic structure to, to sort of um, put some flesh around what that looks like. Okay? So beginning with all that, beginning in verse 9 through 21, let's read together. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. So as I said here, we see a list of exhortations, and I don't want any of us to get uh, thinking that, okay, I'm going to do this, and then this, and then this. Paul is simply putting some shape to what the life looks like when it's lived in light of the mercy of God, empowered by the Spirit. And we're not going to look at all of them, but we will look at a few that, that I want to highlight. First of all, he says, let love be genuine. Right away, Paul is already dealing with um, pride. Because you see, pride is the death knell of the Christian life, personally and in community. Pride is the antithesis of living in light of the mercies of God. And, and what Paul says here, when he says, let love be genuine, when you're prideful, your love isn't genuine. Your love is self-serving. You love people because it's convenient, or it makes you feel good, or they serve you somehow. And so right away we see how pride is the antithesis of the Christian life. Letting love be genuine means you love others around you in a way that is sincere, without pretense. The word here, if I can get my notes here real, real quick, I lost my, my spot. Um, the word here is, um, I'm, I'm going to get it right. Uh, okay, I lost the word. It's, it's apo, apos, uh, uh, where is that? I'm so sorry. Ah, uh, here we go. The word is ap- anopocritos. See, that's what I need in my notes. Anopocritos. But if I say it, anopocritos, you might hear a word in there if you're a good hearer. Anopocritos. You might hear the, hear the word hypocrite. It's actually connected to the word hypocrite. And it, it means in Greek essentially without hypocrisy. So let love be without hypocrisy. Be sincere. This means that uh, when, so, see, when someone's walking in pride, their love for others is a self-seeking love. But if you want to let love be genuine, it means you love them uh, sincerely, not because of what you get from them or out of them, but because they, like you, have been loved by God, if we're talking about those in the church. You cannot love people genuinely, sincerely, unless you've been radically shaped by the gospel. All of us know what, how easy it is to be hypocrites, don't we? We all know how easy it is to be fake or phony. But in fact, Paul's very first exhortation here is a call, is a call to sincere and genuine love. That's without pretense, without showmanship, without self-serving. We love them sincerely. And it's holistic. It's not just about good feelings. It's a life where we love them internally with genuine affection, but then also our life toward them is lived out in love. So he says we are to love um, without hypocrisy. Let our love be genuine. Next he says to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. So I will say that while that's worth a sermon on its own, I think the basic idea is self-explanatory. And so we're going to move on to verse 10 where he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Now in this instance, Paul actually uses a different word for love. In, in the first verse, verse 9, he uses agape. 
Here he uses a word that is philostorgos. And it, it, it's, it's connected to the word phileo. It means familial affection. And this is, I, I, I want to pause here because there's so much that we can pull out here. When he calls these believers to love one another with brotherly affection or familial affection, what he's saying is that the church is to be like a family. And I don't mean that just, you know, in a nice kind of hallmark way. He's saying that what a church, you cannot fulfill this exhortation unless you see church as a place where there's familial affection, where there's family, where you are members of a family. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, they refer to churches as the household of God. We are to, you cannot fulfill this commandment unless you first recognize that your local Christian community is a family. You are to treat one another as family members. You know, I don't know about you, but there are things that you do in your family. You let your guard down in ways you don't when you're outside in the outside world, right? There are all kinds of things that we, we will let our guard down with our family members. And why? Because they're family. So there's a bond of affection that we can be more comfortable being ourselves around family members. We don't have to have the pretense that everything's okay or we're all good. So when Paul here tells us to have family affection for one another, he's saying you are to be a family. You are to be shaped by the same kinds of affection that family members have for one another. It doesn't mean there's no fighting. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're all sinless. Quite the contrary. What it means is you let your guard down with one another and you are family. In families, people, they toot in houses. I'm not going to need a laugh out of that. I have a lot of kids. There's a lot of tooting in my house. Because we let our guard down. I don't do that when I'm at work. But we let our guard down. All the parents are laughing. Right? Well, you know what? In the church family of God, there should be some reality is I do too. Meaning I'm stinky. My sin is stinky. And you got to put up with it. And i got to put up with yours. Because we're in the same family. Right? You see, that's what it means to have family affection. It doesn't mean just to love each other formally. It means, no, we become like brothers and sisters. We become close. We let our guard down. You cannot fulfill this exhortation if you treat church as a function you do on Sunday morning. Isn't that ironic? Paul's exhortation here tells us how to view church. Because you can't treat church as a program or a denomination or a a pastor's name on the, on the, on the, the side of the building, or, or whatever else. You cannot fulfill this exhortation if you do not treat church as a family. It's impossible to fulfill this command apart from that. So he's calling us here to love one another with brotherly affection, which means letting our guard down with one another, means letting us be real with each other. That's when love matters. When you see my stinkiness and you still hang out with me, that's when you're fulfilling this commandment. This, sorry, this, this exhortation. Brotherly love doesn't mean we just hang out and have a beer and chit-chat every once, once a semester or whatever. It means that we know each other enough that we, we rub each other. I'm in a family. We rub each other. You rub each other in your family? Yes. You know? 
And so you cannot fulfill this exhortation to love one another with brotherly affection if you do not understand first and foremost that means you need to have that familial, familiarity with one another. Then this exhortation becomes real. Then to love one another with this kind of affection means something. He says we are to love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, today I'm going to gloss over the next several exhortations. He says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, he says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. All those are fantastic and worthy of sermons on their own. But for the sake of time, uh, we're going to gloss over those and go to verse 14. In verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, I don't know about you, but this is why I started going, well, hold on a minute. Because it's one thing, it's hard enough, if we're honest, to love one another in the church with brotherly affection. To cut through our, our, our preferences and our biases and our sins and genuinely love each other. But now, he says, in relation to those outside the church, we are to bless those who persecute us. And that doesn't mean, say, you know, they sneeze and you say, bless you. This word bless here is a deeply profound theological word. If you let this word sink in, it, it, it really will break your brain. What he's saying for us to do here. The, the, the Greek here is eulageo. It's where we get the word eulogy. To God himself uses this word. The Psalms are full of this word that, that we are to be in covenant with God. We are his blessed people. You could say it this way, that the entire Old Testament can be called an explanation via demonstration of what it means to be blessed by God. And here, Paul says we are the same word to bless those who persecute us. The basic, the basic dictionary word of this, by the way, is, is where we see the power of it. Eulogeo uh, means to speak well of others, to praise them. To love them. He's saying here, if we boil it down, you are to speak well of those who persecute you. You are to praise them. You are to show honor to them. I don't know about you, but that is a radical, radical way of approaching those who are our enemy. Whether that means they are persecuting us for our religious reasons or whatever else we're doing with in life, it's a principle that we are to turn towards those who the world for whatever reason sets up as our enemy they, they're after us and we are to speak well of them not just to others but to them directly we are to bless those who persecute us this is a radical radical depart, um, departure from typical sinful human nature and it will not get you any kind of bonus points in the world around you. When you bless those who persecute you, you look weak. Let's be real. When you bless those who persecute you, you look weak. You can be exploited. If it's a boss at work who is, who is an, an angry boss, who's a difficult boss, who persecutes you via making you work long hours, and you or who is... Who, don't, don't, who knows what else, maybe saying things behind your back or what have you, and you speak well of them to others and to them, well, they can exploit you. 
You're not going to retaliate. Now, in the world around us, we see you come at me, I'm going to do what? I'm going to go at you, right? That's the world. You come at me, oh, you mess with me. Oh, you want, you want some of this? That's human nature, isn't it? Isn't it? And Paul says we are to have, we are to channel all that ferocity, all of that anger towards blessing them. That's what's so crazy here. He's not saying be weak and passive. He says take your energy, take your ferocity, take your anger and channel it towards blessing them. He says bless those who persecute you. In verses 15 to 18, he gives a further series of exhortations that are all worthy of sermons. But again, just for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to just read them and then we'll move on to the end of this section. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As I said, there's a lot of specific exhortations, but we, if we step back and we look, we, we recognize all of these can be characterized as a life lived out of the mercy of God that is then showing love and mercy to others as sacrifices. However, I do want to get to this last part, verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by, by evil, but overcome evil with good. These last few verses are probably, I would suggest, at least for me, some of the most memorable in all the New Testament. Overcome evil with good. Heap burning coals on his head. Paul here calls the believers, the church in Rome, to respond to those who persecute them, not just with feelings of, of um, passivity or acceptance or tolerance, but with active actions of love. You are to, you are to, to do something, not just sit there and say, okay, well, I'm not going to criticize you or I'm not going to um, you know, uh, get back at you. He says, to the contrary, you are to actively show love to those who are your enemy. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, the Christian is to use love as a weapon. Paul here is calling the believer, you and me, to use love as a weapon. I don't know about you, but first of all, only, only Christ could model such an example of what this looks like. Only Jesus can show what it looks like to use love as a weapon. Because what did Jesus do? He showed love to his enemy, did he not? He showed mercy to you and to me. He showed love to his enemy. And in doing so, every single person here became a believer. Why? Because you responded to the radical message that God loves you. That's why you became a believer. You heard somewhere at some point in your life 
God loves you. He sent his son to die for you on the cross. And when you heard that message, you responded in faith and belief. The love of God was a weapon in our own hearts, convicting us of our sin, convicting us of our wickedness, convicting us of our vileness. God used love as a weapon to save us. And he's saying to us, that's exactly what we are to do, to use love as a weapon. He says, first of all, we can, I mean, in terms of judgment, as we show love towards others, it will have two results. One, that person hopefully would be converted. Amen? Some of you are in here. I bet some of you in here could stand up and say, you know what? I was vile to my mom or my brother or my whoever for year after year, and they kept loving me and loving me and loving me, and eventually God got a hold of me. Someone here today, I know it, is here because some person in their life loved them year after year after year until finally, finally God got a hold of them. There are people in this room that have that testimony. So we hope and we pray that as someone is persecuting us or the church, as we respond in love to that person, that is a message that God uses in part to convert them. But on the contrary, if it doesn't, if they continue to persecute, even if they were to take our life, then what the, the, Paul's point here is that we, our love is just further exacerbating their condemnation before God. But let's be clear. When we're doing that, we're not judging them. They're judging themselves. So we are to respond to persecution with acts of love, tangible acts of love. And in so doing, to those who do not respond to God's offer of grace, they are heaping judgment on themselves. But how, do we, how can we possibly do this? You see, it sounds great to sit up here on a Sunday morning and in Katy, Texas and say this. But if you see the realities of what this looks like in the world, it is, not, it is not easy. There are Christians all over the world today suffering enormous persecution and death for their faith. This is not a light subject matter. I'm not going to get into gory details, but there are Christians all over the world today who are losing their lives, losing their families, losing their jobs, losing everything because they are hated for being believers. This call here can only be sustained by the Spirit of Christ within an individual and a church to persevere in loving those who hate you. When they slap you across the face to turn to them and then say, you know what, God loves you. He died for you. That testimony is happening all over the world where believers are experiencing enormous persecution and responding, just as Paul is encouraging them to here. And I doubt, I'm sure if you boiled it down to their individual life, you would see it's just as messy as our lives are. I'm not saying these people are perfect people. But I am saying that all throughout the world right now, this call to respond to persecution in love is being played out all over the world. So how can we possibly, in our psyche, do this? How can human beings 
realistically do this, to live in a world where there's injustice, to live in a world where, where, where believers are persecuted where, um, where, and even killed, to live in a world where there's so much evil and wickedness. How can, humanly speaking, we possibly do this? And Paul tells us, he says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There was a, a pastor um, in the Sichuan province of China who had been pastoring for many years. Uh, Early Rain Church is the name of the church. It, this church was five, six, seven hundred people in communist China. Not the only one, but uh, one, one, one church. And he was a, he's a reformed guy, actually. But um, Xi Jinping decided he was tired of the church and tired of all these Christians and tired of what they were doing. So he began to go after the church, including this one, because it was quite visible and quite well known. And so he arrested the pastor. Today his whereabouts are unknown. His family has no idea where he is. There's no rights. There's no, I mean, there's trials. He, he will likely, he may get out, and if he does, his health will probably be, if, if history shows from China, his health will be so poor from all the torture and mistreatment that he will maybe not even be um, aware of his cognitive abilities or have them anymore. Who knows if he ever gets out. Millions of Christians around the world suffer a similar fate. How can we as a church possibly sustain our faith in a good God while at the same time recognizing that the world is full of injustice and evil. We are, the only way to reconcile that is, as Paul says here, to know that there is judgment, that there is justice on behalf of God, of God's people and on behalf of God, that the righteous will be vindicated. See, just as Christ when, when Jesus hung on the cross, he looked humiliated. God, the Jewish God, looked humiliated. To be clear, when the Romans hung Jesus on a cross, they were not just saying Jesus is humiliated. They were intending to humiliate the Jews, which is why they insisted on putting what sign above him? King of the Jews. They did that because the Romans wanted to humiliate them. Here's your God. This man claims to be your God. Great, this is going to be fun. Let's humiliate him. The Romans loved to humiliate their enemies. And the, cru the cross was specifically chosen as an instrument of humiliation. When Jesus died on the cross, he died completely and totally humiliated. Around the world and throughout church history, the church has suffered utter humiliation. And individual believers have suffered utter humiliation at the hands of those who oppose them and who hate them. But there is coming a day of vindication when God himself will declare what is true and good and righteous and those who have opposed his people and his church will stand condemned. And the way that the, the person in prison or the person who is sent to a cross or the person who is sent to um, suffer whatever fate for their faith, the way they can reconcile this is they know that God is a God of justice and that justice will win out. Amen? Um, 
I'm going to close with uh, some words from uh, Diane Langberg. Uh, she's a noted, man, get all emotional. Jeez. All right. Uh, from Diane Langberg, a noted Christian psychologist. And I want to close with these words because she does such a good job. You see, it's so easy when we read these passages to idealize it. And she does such a good job of talking about the reality of living the life Paul's just called us to live with our own sin and the sins of others. She says, you and I are too small for the weight of the world's garbage. You and, I have, you and I have garbage of our own. Apart from the ongoing work of the cross in our lives, you will never see beauty made out of garbage because such a task is beyond our ability. It is a supernatural work. 1 John 5 states the dual realities in which we live. The realities, the young college age, she talks about some colleges, the realities the young college-aged woman had difficulty holding on to simultaneously, garbage and beauty. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know those two things. We also know that the, sons of, that the Son of God has come. Children of God in a world controlled by the evil one. That's how we live our life. Children of God control, in a, in a, living in a world controlled by the evil one. I fear the odds are against us. We are no match for such garbage. Our wits are too slow, our understanding finite, and our strength too frail. But, and this is a glorious but, we also know that the Son of God has come. Eternal beauty in garbage city. And in his coming, he walked in our garbage. He was crushed by our garbage. He transformed our garbage. And now, even as we continue in garbage city, he has commissioned us to walk in garbage, to let it touch us. He has also called us to count the things of this age as garbage, the tinsel, the applause, the success, so that he might work through us to transform garbage into beauty, first in our lives and then, and then in those we serve. Do you hear the call? It is a hard call. It is a call to be relentless about the garbage in our lives. It is a call to fight and wrestle with that garbage, pleading with God to incinerate the dross and transform the ugliness into beauty. That means we relentlessly deal with our petty squabbles and divisions and criticisms. That means we willingly deal with the hidden stuff, the bitterness, the addictions, the power-seeking. That means we seek the glory of the Father without compromise, without stealing a bit for ourselves. I'm going I'm to uh, go down here again, uh, move down a little bit. She says, um, Though outwardly we are wasting away, quoting Paul, easing toward death, the ultimate garbage, yet inwardly, because of the cross, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. That far, is outweigh, that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And then she calls us to lay hold of the hope of the new heavens and new earth. So I quote this because this beautiful passage here is, is, is great in the abstract. You just read it in a quiet time. But fleshing it out, living in line with the beauty of the cross, or sorry, the, the beauty of grace, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the redemption that God has given us. We are called to do that as we wrestle with our own garbage and living in, she calls it, garbage city, the world. So it's, it's a call to actively pursue life 
as a sacrifice, knowing that it's not going to be easy or fun, but in the midst of it is where we will find life and joy and blessing, personally and also as a church. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for Paul. And God, as I think about how he described humanity before the gospel, outside of Christ, and then how he can then give such beautiful exhortations here in chapter 12, we know that in between that stands Jesus, stands you, and what you have done to save us, to renew us in Christ, to give us your spirit. And God, as we wrestle with our own sin, as we read these verses and see how beautiful they are, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would indeed empower us individually and as a church to live them out in tangible, real ways with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.